Okay, as Tim said, we're going to be continuing our series of messages in the Bible book of Luke today. We're in Luke chapter 13. And today we're once again coming across some rather tricky words of Jesus. Last week we heard from Luke Howard, and he was teaching on some, um, some verses that uh, really were quite hard for us to hear. Jesus says some tough things. And once again in today's passage, we're, we're coming across some tough teaching from Jesus. And it might actually blow apart our uh, preconceived ideas about Jesus. Maybe you're watching this, and maybe you think Jesus is, is a bit of a wimp. Maybe you think he's a bit like uh, this guy that we see as a picture on the screen here. Maybe you think that uh, he is uh, able to be kind of pushed over. He's blown over by the wind. Maybe you think he wouldn't say boo to a goose. Maybe you think he would never bring a challenging word to anyone. Well, as we are going to see in today's scripture, we're going to see that Jesus will, uh, he will say some strong things about suffering and tragedy, some things about repentance, and he will have some strong words to say to the religious establishment of his day. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. I trust that we're going to be able to uh, really unpack this today. We're going to go to all kinds of different areas today, suffering and tragedy. We're going to venture even into a little bit of politics as well, uh, particularly pertinent with what's been going on in America this week. We're going to touch upon some rather big things today. Why do uh, bad things happen to supposedly good people? We're going to go in all sorts of areas today, and I trust we're going to be able to do it in 25 minutes. So let's read uh, Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 9. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. And then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit in it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we very simply ask you this morning that you will help us to uh, bring out all that we can from this passage. Lord, we believe that your word is breathed out by you and it's good for us. And I pray you'll do us much good as we unpack it this morning. Amen. Amen. So at this point in the narrative, there seemingly has been two tragedies in Israel. There's been a tower in a place called Siloam, which has fallen and has killed 18 people. And then a little while later, just before this particular story, uh, some people have gone to worship at the temple. And Pontius Pilate, who was uh, the governor of the region on behalf of the Romans, he uh, put to death some people just as they were going to go and bring their worship at the temple. Two horrendous uh, incidents that have got people questioning why. They've got people asking, why on earth has this happened? And Jesus, uh, somehow sensing uh, their questioning, somehow uh, seeing into their hearts and minds, he says, do you think this was to do with the fact that they were worse sinners than other people? That's what he asks them. Now, 
When we see uh, tragic events unfolding like these in this passage, and like the ones we've seen even this week, an earthquake in Turkey, a terrorist attack in Vienna, a pandemic that's continuing to spread around the world with rising death tolls and lockdown and misery that comes with that, we might ask the question, why? Why suffering and tragedy? Why is this going on? We cannot escape it. And if this stream of bad news and death only paused for a minute, we might ask ourselves, well, how is this possible if God is all-powerful and good? Perhaps you're watching this morning and maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. Maybe in the midst of this lockdown, you thought, well, what else am I going to do on a Sunday morning? And this might be your stumbling block. This might be the thing that you ask. Well, if God is supposedly all-powerful and good, why does he allow suffering? Why doesn't he just stop it? Well, I believe that the very questioning of suffering, as if it was uh, an unwelcome guest at the party of life, the fact that we're taken aback by it as if it shouldn't be there, is actually a sign to us that maybe this world wasn't supposed to be like this. If this world was an accident, if it all just came about by chance, which many people believe, then we should expect chaos. We should expect suffering. We should expect random things to happen. And we shouldn't rail against it and wish it wasn't so. We shouldn't find ourselves dreaming of a world where there was no suffering. I actually believe that the fact we question it, I believe that the fact that we are so taken aback when tragic events happen is a pointer. It's a sign that actually this world was not meant to be like this. That it was not meant to contain suffering and tragedy and death. The Christian story says that we were meant to live in a world devoid of suffering, devoid of death, actually to live perfectly forever in God's presence. I believe that that story makes sense of the fact that we question suffering and tragedy. I believe it's that story that actually makes sense of the fact that we are taken aback by it, while we wish it wasn't there in the first place. And this is why we, we try and, and justify why suffering happens. This is why we try and justify it in our minds. We do that, don't we? We start to think of tragedies that go on and we can start to think, well, maybe it happened because of X, Y, Z. These people that Jesus was speaking to, they thought, well, maybe that tower fell on them because they were caught up in some sin. Maybe that, that, that tragedy, that horrific event at the temple happened because it was God's judgment towards these worshippers. They just weren't doing something right in their lives and, and God was judging them through Pontius Pilate. We try to um, justify it in our minds because if we can justify it, then we can, we can think, well, it won't happen to me. If we, if we think it's happening to that person because of X sin in their life, and we think, well, it's okay, it will never happen to me. That's why we justify it, I believe. And Jesus sees something of the heart of the people that he's teaching. They're trying to work out why. Maybe they, these people died because they were worse than us. And people still do this now. Religious people do it. They look at natural disasters happening in different countries, and they say, well, it's happening over there because those people in that country, they've become liberal in their laws, or they worship another god, and therefore the true god is bringing down vengeance upon them. But also, non-religious people do it as well. They look at other countries that are maybe struggling, and they say, well, hey, they're going through this tough time because they're not progressive and liberal like us. They don't have the same kind of enlightened ideas as we do. And we kind of justify it in some way so that we can think, well, it won't happen to me. We, try and, we don't want to think about the, the, the fact that our lives are temporary, that we won't live forever. But the Bible doesn't really give a simplistic explanation as to why suffering happens, why bad things 
happen. What is clear from the Bible and what is clear from Jesus' teaching here is that there's no one simplistic explanation. And Jesus' response to them is that you, you can't look at one thing and say, well, there's one reason why that happened and I know what it is. There could be a whole host of things going on. The book of Job in this Bible teaches us that there's a whole host of things going on when suffering happens. And Jesus says in this passage, it wasn't down to extraordinary wrongdoing on behalf of these people who died. It's not because they were worse than other people. Jesus knows the answer, and he knows it's not because they were worse than others. But instead of explaining why, as we would love for him to do, he instead takes the opportunity to teach into two things that his hearers need to heed, two things that we really need to heed for ourselves today. The first is that he speaks of humanity being on a level playing field. He speaks of humanity being in the same boat, that all of humanity are ultimately in the same boat. And he will, he will really talk about one particular thing. I'm going to talk about two things today on that front. The second that we'll come on to later on is that we need to repent. We need to turn away from some things and turn to him in faith. We need to get into Jesus's boat. Now, we've had uh, in recent months phrases from uh, policymakers and from um, TV uh, personalities, hey, when it comes to the pandemic, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We're all going through the same thing. And it makes us cringe a little bit, doesn't it? Because actually we know that it's not the same for everyone. We know that for some, particularly those making the decisions, they've got job security. They've got probably large gardens that they can enjoy in lockdown. And for millions of people, sadly, that's not the case. Depending on your income and your job security and uh, what you could actually do with your, your free time in terms of the resources you have, we've, we're in vastly different boats. We're in the same storm, uh, but we're not in the same boat. But actually, Jesus says, when it comes to humanity, we are in the same boat. And the Bible teaches that we're in the same boat in, in two particular ways. The first is that we're all in the same boat when it comes to the, the fact that we're all made in the image of God. All of us, all humanity, made in the likeness of God. This is actually the, the bedrock of the human rights movement. It's the bedrock of human rights legislation and um, constitutions and laws right across the world, but particularly in the West and in places where Christianity has been embraced. The fact that we are all image bearers of God is, the, is really the bedrock of just society. Now, we might have been uh, leaving Christianity behind in our nation in, in recent decades, and some of those things might start to be un, uh, un, unraveling a little bit, but ultimately, whether secular thinkers would want to admit it or not, the fact that we have a human rights movement is, is based on the truth that the Bible teaches, that we are all made in the image of God. What's at the core of it, what's at the foundation is Christian thinking. Uh, evolutionary teaching would say, well, it's all an accident, and ultimately, it's, it's the, the fittest and the strongest that survive. That doesn't lead to human rights legislation. And actually, as we, as I say, have more and more left behind the gospel and the foundations of the Bible in recent decades, it's become the case that actually the vulnerable and the inconvenient get pushed to one side or even destroyed. But actually, right at the heart of our, our society is, is a Christian thought that all humanity are in the same boat, that no matter what their resources, no matter what they look like, they're actually made in the image of God. And that gives them great dignity. 
That is why racism is evil. It's because it's an affront to the image of God within people. That's what, that's what Dr. Martin Luther King appealed to when, when, he, when, when he was leading civil rights uh, efforts in America. He was saying, all humans are made in God's image. We are equal because of our, our shared uh, reflection of the image of God. But Jesus teaches us something else that's quite sobering in this passage about humanity. Not only are we equal in God's sight, not only are we um, equally valued and have equal dignity because we're made in God's image, we are all also in the same boat when it comes to the fact that we are all falling short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We've all turned away from God and turned towards sin. It's a teaching that has come to be known as, as total depravity, that outside of Jesus, outside of knowing him, we are all totally helpless. We're all totally stuck in sin and heading towards an eternity without God and without anything that is good. This is quite a sobering teaching. The Apostle Paul, who, who wrote much of uh, the the, the New Testament in the Bible, he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. What does that mean? What does it look like? How does that look fleshed out? Well, it primarily concerns our relationship to God, which then affects everything else in our lives. It's, it's God first and everything else flows from that. And we've fallen short. We've we fail to honor the glory of God. The holiness of God has not been revered in our hearts. The, the greatness of God has not been admired. The power of God has not been praised. The truth of God has not been sought in our hearts. The greatness of God, rather the wisdom of God has not been esteemed. The beauty of God has not been treasured and valued. The faithfulness of God has not been trusted. The promises of God have not been believed. The commandments of God have not been obeyed and the presence of God has not been prized. That's ultimately what it, what it looks like to sin, to fall short of God's glorious standard. It's towards God, first and foremost, and everything else flows from that. This is what it means. When it comes to our standing before God, we are all in the same boat. We all fall short of God's standard. Some have fallen short in, spectacular, in spectacularly uh, awful ways. And some have kept a bit of respectability about it, uh, hiding behind nice clothes or a seemingly nice life. But we've all fallen short. Christianity is uniquely democratic in that regard. We're all in the same boat. We're all valued in God's sight by virtue of the fact that we are made in his image. But we have all been born into a sinful world and we all sin and fall short of God's glorious standard. Secular teaching will say, well, we're actually all free. We're actually all free to do what we like with our lives, to try and make the best of it that we can, try and make the, the, the world a better place. As long as we don't hurt people, we, we can do whatever we like. That's kind of the, the, the viewpoint. Well, Christianity teaches us something profoundly different. Actually, before we come to know Jesus, we are actually slaves to sin. We're actually helpless to make the world a better place because ultimately greed and pride and all kinds of other things seep in and without God we're heading towards destruction it seems increasingly though that there's this feeling that if we can only 
uh, progress. If only we can leave some tradition and, and dogma behind, then we can progress to this ideal. We can progress to this utopia. And that's kind of been going on in the election that we've even seen this week. There's two sides who want to get towards some sort of utopia, and they have very different ideas about how to get there. But one side is saying, hey guys, there's a, there's a glorious future ahead of us. We need to be progressive. We need to get towards this perfection by leaving behind tradition. We need to leave behind some things that have held us back. And there's another side that is saying, hey, we were once great. There was once a utopia. I don't know where they point to exactly, but we were once great. And if we can only get back to that again, we can be great again. They both have the same ideal that if we only work hard enough, if we only look within ourselves, if we only uh, kind of believe strongly enough, we can create utopia. We can progress to perfection. And the Bible says that's actually futile. Outside of, of Jesus, we, we're, we're trapped in our sin. We're trapped in our wrongdoing, and we can't create heaven on earth because we will only get caught up in pride and greed and lust and all kinds of things. Both sides actually have the same goal, ultimately. They have very different ideas about how to get there. But they're both flawed in that they think that politics is the hope of the world. Listen, politics is not the hope of the world. And when politics kind of replaces faith, people look at the other side as unsaved and themselves as saved. And that's increasingly happening. It becomes more and more polarized. When things be re replace the, the rightful place of God, we, we start denouncing other people as, well, they're evil and, and we're right and just. And it happens on both sides. And it's not just an American thing. <laughs> it's a UK thing as well. And as, as tempting as it may be, we must resist the urge to say, hey, uh, well, I'm in the right and I know what's right. Actually, we need to see that outside of Christ, and for those of us who know Jesus, before we came to know him, we were helpless in our sin. And we've added nothing. As we've even heard this morning, it was God's initiative. It was God's saving. We've added nothing to the, to the equation. We must resist the urge to judge others and say, hey, they're worse than me. No, all of us outside of Christ are helpless in our sin. Jesus is saying, unless you get in my boat, you're all in the same boat. No matter what your political leaning, no matter what your education level, no matter what you've done in your life, you're all in the same boat, and it's heading in a very bad direction. Where is this boat heading? It's heading towards destruction and misery. That's what the Bible says. It's a sobering reality. And Jesus is saying, don't obsess about other people's sin. Be concerned first for your own plight. Repent now. Repent now. Repentance involves a change of heart and mind. It means turning. It means turning around from, from one way of doing things, one uh, direction that your life is heading in, and turning to Jesus in faith and obedience. That's what repentance means. Turn towards him now. These tragedies, the tragedies we see around us day to day, are actually to lead us, they're actually to lead us to repent and turn towards God in faith. Tragedies remind us that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And as the psalmist says, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may live wisely. We will all be brought before God to give an account of our life. And that could be tomorrow. 
It could be any day. And in light of that reality, Jesus warns his hearers to repent. And then he tells a story to illustrate this. He tells them a story of a, a vineyard. And in this vineyard, they're growing fig trees. They used to do that. It's not weird. And the, uh, the, the vineyard owner comes along and he sees this, this fig tree that has not produced fruit for a long time. And he says to the vine dresser, cut it down. And the vine dresser says, hey, let's give it one more year. I'm going to pay it some special attention. And then if it's not bought, bought any fruit, then you can cut it down. Jesus is warning his hearers here. And actually, he's warning the people of Israel in general that they need to turn away from idols and turn to God in faith. They need to repent. They need to have bear fruit that is consistent with repentance. They need to be a true turning around. That's what he's doing here, but I believe this is really applicable for us as well. There's a coming day when we will be called to give an account for the fruitfulness in our lives and for the way in which we've built upon the foundation of Jesus. Jesus has laid this foundation down. He's done all that is necessary for our salvation. We never need to add to it. It's a sacrifice that, as we've already celebrated this morning, it's a sacrifice that is a once and for all deal. There's no way you can add to the work of Jesus. There's no way you can earn your salvation. It's a gift from God. And yet, it is our responsibility to then build upon that foundation. How are we going to bear fruit in, uh, that is consistent with the fact that we're now uh, rooted in Jesus, that we're now uh, founded upon him? And there's going to come a day when we're called to give an account for that. Let us not be those who, who scramble around quickly trying to tidy up our life when we believe that our time has come. Luke shared that last week, didn't he? That sometimes when you're, uh, you're left home alone and you know that your parents are coming back any minute now, you're suddenly scrambling around. Oh, quick, I've got to make sure I tidy up my mess. Now, let us, let us turn away from evil now and turn towards Jesus in faith now. Let's, as we heard last week from Morris, let's make noble plans with Jesus. This might seem like a hard message and even a repetitive one, given that we covered what we covered last week. But Jesus is, is painting a picture through this parable. Every man, woman, and child deserves God's judgment against his or her sin. We deserve to be cut down. There's no one who can say, if they were cut down, hey, that's unjust. There's no one who can say, that's not fair. I, I deserve more time. No, we deserve to be judged. We deserve to be cut off from God forever, but it's only through his mercy that he's drawn us in. And the fact that life continues day after day is not God's way of saying, hey, it's okay for you to live without reference to me. No, it's his mercy and patience on display. God would be perfectly just to end our lives right now. It wouldn't be unjust if he did it. But in his mercy, God is withholding judgment and he's allowing time for repentance. Maybe you're watching this and you this is something you're just acutely aware of. I haven't turned to Jesus <laughs> decisively. I haven't turned away from everything that I'm living my life for, everything that I'm giving myself to. I haven't turned to Jesus decisively and placed my faith in him. Well, God is allowing you time, but the, the time is now. Turn to him now. He's showing you great patience, but he wants you to turn to him. Jesus is saying, when you hear of tragedy, let that lead you to change of heart and mind. 
and are turning towards me. Don't look at others and think, well, they must have done something horrendous. Look at them and think, actually, I deserve a fate that is far worse. But God in his kindness has given me time to turn. So where do we go from here? Where do we, how do we land this? How on earth can Jesus say these kinds of things? What gives him the right to say these things? Well, I believe that the very next uh, section of this passage gives us the answer to those questions. We see a story that just happened shortly after this. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. Can you believe this? But the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman a daughter of Abraham. Here he's showing them that humanity is of greater worth than animals because we're made in the image of God. This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Only the all-powerful, always-existing Son of God has the authority to do this, has the authority to say to this woman who has been crippled for 18 years, you are freed. That's what it says in, perhaps even in your translation that you're reading from at home. He says, you are freed. He's the one who comes to bring liberty for the captives. He's come to bring liberty and freedom for you. Only him, only he could do this. This woman had been this way for 18 years. This was helpless and desperate. She would have tried everything to get out of this. She would have tried everything. Every, op- every opportunity when someone with, supposedly with a healing gift came to town or someone who maybe had some medicine she could try, she would have tried everything. And she was completely helpless. How can I get out of this situation? It's a picture of us before we come to know Jesus. We feel helpless. We feel trapped. We feel like there's no way out. And Jesus says, you are freed. He wants to bring you liberty. And you might think, Christianity, if I gave my life to Jesus, it'll only ensnare me, it'll restrict me. Please believe me, please hear me. Jesus wants to free you. You're, you're captive to the people's opinion of you. You're, you're captive to the fear of death. You're captive to all kinds of uh, desires within. Jesus wants to free you. And he wants to bring you into green pastures. He wants to bring you into great things. It's not an easy life, but he wants to bring you into life in all its fullness. Coming to Jesus won't enslave you. It will set you free. It will set you free. He wants you to jump into his boat with both feet. He wants you to get off the boat of misery and bondage and destruction and into his boat of salvation. And as we see here, there's, there's two responses to Jesus. There's two responses to him. There's no middle ground, really. There's the religious establishment who say, Jesus, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. These guys want to tell God what he can and cannot do. They're they're, they're trying to count Jesus 
out on a technicality. They're trying to dismiss him because he, he confounds their expectations. There's that response which says, I'm, I'm always going to find a but. I'm always going to find an, a reason why I cannot embrace Jesus. And then there's those who rejoice at the wonderful things he did. What are you going to do today? Are you going to count Jesus out on a technicality? Are you going to say, no, I can't, I can't embrace him? Or are you going to say, I'm going to rejoice in him? Are you going to rejoice in what he's done for you on the cross? Will you embrace him and say, Jesus, I, I rejoice that you went there for me. I, I rejoice that you took my sin and my shame and you experienced God's judgment that I may never have to. I may never have to experience the, the, the rightful wrath of God towards my sin because you went there for me. Will you rejoice in the one who is not aloof from suffering and tragedy? Jesus doesn't give a clear answer as to why these people went through that tragedy. But listen, he's stepped into our world. He's taken on flesh and he, know, he has known the most horrific suffering. He's not aloof from it. He's not, he's not somehow thinking, well, they, you know, they can just go through it all and he, he's completely emotionless towards it. No, he, he knows. He knows. Will you rejoice in this one who conquered death itself? Will you rejoice in the one who burst from the grave and made a way to eternal life? Or will you be like the religious leaders, the opponents of Jesus, who walk away from an encounter with Jesus shamed? Are you going to make excuses? I can't accept Jesus because he doesn't do the things that I expect him to do. I can't accept Jesus because I can't relinquish control. I can't relinquish control. That might be your reason for not embracing Jesus. I can't relinquish my reputation. That was a big thing for these religious establishment guys. I can't relinquish control or my reputation. You can turn to Jesus now. You may have known more than 18 years of a helpless situation. You may have known 18 years of misery and you might have tried everything. You might have tried drugs or alcohol. You might have tried uh, scratch cards and get rich quick schemes. You might have tried uh, sex relationships. You might have tried having children and making them the center of your life. You might have tried uh, self-improvement uh, classes. You might, have, you might have tried self-harm. You might have tried all kinds of things to, to, to try and free yourself from the, the bondage that you're in. You might have tried fitness regimes. You might have tried home improvement. You might have tried political bandwagons, thinking, if only we get the right party in, then we can know utopia. I don't know what it is you've tried, but listen, it, it doesn't work. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to, to get off the boat you're in. You need to jump with two feet into Jesus' boat. He is the one who brings liberty. And you can receive forgiveness and mercy from him today. He will return. The, 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 vine, uh, the vineyard owner will return to the vineyard. The master will return from the banquet. He will return. We don't know when it will be. Jesus himself says, only my father knows the time and the hour. But he will return. It's a, it's a sure and certain truth. He will return and he's not being, he's not being uh, lazy. He's not kind of just forgotten that he's supposed to be returning. This is what it says in Second Peter in chapter 3. You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. 
No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. He's not being slow in fulfilling his promise. He wants you to come to him now. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now where you might say, Lord, I surrender. I give up my searching. I give up the things that I'm running long and hard after and I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to get into your boat. And maybe today you already know this Jesus. Maybe you already know he's decisively dealt with your sin. Maybe you know, I know I'm going to be with him forever. But you just know that some things that you've allowed to creep in, some things that you've allowed yourself to put your trust in, and God wants to just lovingly help you to turn away from that today and to say, I've I've trusted with the wrong things. I'm going to turn away. Once again, I'm going to turn away. In fact, the Christian life is one of, of repentance and faith, turning away and turning to Jesus. But I want to lead those who perhaps need to make a commitment to Jesus today, to who, who those who want to just for the very first time give their life to Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. And if you have prayed this with me, we would love to hear from you. We really would. We, please uh, head to our website, hopeipswich.co.uk, fill in a uh, connect card on there. Let us know that you've made this decision and we want to help you in your next steps of following Jesus. Let's pray. Why don't you just pray this in your hearts with me. Lord, I recognize that I am in a boat heading towards destruction. I recognize that no matter what I try, I I cannot seem to get free. But today, I've heard that there is a redeemer, there is a liberator, there is someone who can free me. And I want to jump with both feet into your boat right now in faith. I want to cling to you, Jesus. And I want to say, Jesus, save me, rescue me, turn my life around. Thank you, Jesus. You went to the cross and you bore the brunt. You bore the weight of my sin and shame. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You died for me and you rose again. And it's you that I look to now and I live for you. I choose to live for you. Amen. Amen. If you've prayed that, if you've prayed that prayer in your own heart, we want to hear from you. Please do get in touch with us. And we're going to sing now. Uh, And as we sing this final song before we close, maybe you already know this Jesus. Maybe you already know him to be your savior. And you just know there's some things. I've just allowed myself to become enamored with the things of this world. I've allowed myself to put my trust in things that they're not really going to be trustworthy. Why don't you, as we sing, why don't you just repent? He loves you so much. God loves you so much, and he wants to draw you. It's his kindness that draws us to repentance. He wants you to bear fruit in your life. He wants you to be fruitful for him. As you abide in him, as you root yourself in him, he wants you to be fruitful. So why don't you just afresh say to God, I want to be found rooted in you. Why don't you do that right now, even as we sing? Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, come to those scattered around this area. Come now. Would you bring healing, Lord? Would you bring spiritual healing? But would you bring 
physical healing. Lord, would there be people who, like this woman, trapped physically for years, knowing complete freedom. You can do this, Father, and I pray that right now you would come and bring healing to broken bodies, bodies that are in pain and discomfort. Would you come and bring healing? In Jesus' name we pray.